This is a HeadGum Podcast. While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Why don't you tell me about how much our viewers enjoyed the time I almost died on air for them? Our ear ear viewers, they look they look with their ears. Yeah, the you one would call them they would traditionally be described as listeners, I think. We're on the cutting edge um, of, God, of language. Yeah. The tech that we use is on the next level. <laughs> last last week we tried a lot of Turkish delight for our book podcast, which is called Overdue, it's a podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. That was a trick that you played on me. You were taking a drink, and I had to (laughs) just stretch that syllable out. We tried some Turkish Delight, which, if you remember, is a gross candy that's made out of flowers and hate. And we tried it on air because we were reading Line the Witch in the Wardrobe, and the kid and one of the kids in that book would sell out his whole family for it. Yeah. And it wasn't, we didn't like it very much. And most people agreed with us and thought it was pretty funny. A couple people, and this is a this is a thing that I heard before we tried it and after we tried it, were like, oh, you'd try the wrong kind. You should try the kind that has chocolate on it. And listen, I'm not here to disagree with you about whether that is good or not. But Putting chocolate on anything is like easy mode for candy. Like, of course, I feel like it's better with chocolate on it. Anything's well, better sure. with chocolate on it. That's true. You put I, chocolate. I think people put chocolate on grasshoppers. They do. I and remember. Eat it. Hey, I've, I think I. I think that's some Anthony Bourdain stuff I've, that I saw I've on one seen, of his shows. I've seen the episode of Saved by the Bell where Screech eats chocolate bugs. Also, um, I also think that. Talking about the good flavors of Turkish delight is like being a fan of the Adam Sandler movie Spanglish. It's <laughs> like maybe it's fine, may it's but like that dude still made click. Like the the fact that there might be one good Adam Sandler movie does not save the rest of Adam Sandler. Like when I when I go to eat chocolate or when somebody who's not Craig goes to eat like gummy bears or uh-huh. something. Uh huh. It's not like you don't start from a position where it all sucks, but you have to find the right kind. Like <laughs> most chocolate is pretty good, now, and then there are some kinds that are better than other kinds. Many of us were twelve, and many of us enjoyed Billy Madison. But you know, there comes a time when you must put away childish things and move on, <laughs> which I'm going to do right now. So, Andrew, okay, we're going to cool, talk cool, about cool. Uh, the book that you read this week. Uh, which is what and by whom? It's 100 Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Mm. In my notes, I tried to make an acronym for this book, and it just reads 100 Yo's, which... 100 Yo's. (laughs) (laughs) Which, you know, we'll find out if that's how many... I want to find out at the end of the episode how many Yo's you would give this book. Just take the first letter of every word and get Oyos. 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 So, 
this book was uh, written in 1967 by, as we said, Gabriel Garcia. Published, published in 1967. Published in 1967. You don't know when it was written. Before That's... 1967, I guess. <laughs> well, it, assuming that time is linear. Um, he is a Colombian novelist. We did discuss his book, uh, Love in the Time of Cholera, for our second episode ever like of this four podcast. four years ago. That maybe don't go listen to it, because apparently we're chewing on our mics the whole time. Don't do our it. Audio, the audio quality of old episodes. Now, we were pretty proud of it at the time. <laughs> we thought we were NPR. Because we were we were like, oh man, we're not using laptop microphones for this one. We're so professional. Move over, Ira Glass. But really, we were just like bumping. We're just bumping the mic all the time. And also like not researching anything. No, it's a mess. And just sounding like here when we sound like idiots, we're mostly playing it up for comedic effect. And back in the day, it was like not, it was pretty real. (laughs) It was... Funny how, funny how that can just become a skill you can deploy. Um, Mm -hmm. So... Mr. Garcia Marquez, uh, as one of our listeners pointed out, it's his last name is not Marquez. It's Garcia Marquez. Now, and I want to point out here and just like save us the effort of saying Garcia Marquez over and over. In the back of the book that I've got, there's a about the author bit that says, meet Gabriel Garcia Marquez. And it says uh, his fellow Colombians familiar, familiarly and affectionately refer to their Nobel laureate as Gabo. Okay, so we're calling him Gabo. All so right. Gabo. Gabo was born in 1927. He died in 2014. When he died, the Colombian president at the time, Juan Manuel Santos, referred to him as the greatest Colombian who ever lived. Just, it's pretty cool. Uh, also throwing a lot of shade on the rest of your, <laughs> rest of your constituency, though. Uh, and when this book was published, uh, one critic actually referred to it as the first work of literature since the book of genesis that every person on earth should read um so that's some high high praise for this book uh yeah um pablo pablo neruda called it the greatest revelation in the spanish language since don quixote of cervantes Mm. um william kennedy insisted that it was the first piece yeah the book of genesis thing you just said um john leonard in the new york times wrote with a single bound gabriel garcia marquez leaps onto the stage with gunter grass and vladimir nabokov um ronald christ in Commonweal, or maybe christ i'm gonna say christ though <laughs> jesus's deadbeat brother ronald christ marveled <laughs> that while we've been wondering about the great american novel it looks as if marquez may well have written the great novel of the americas oh cool that's a good ooh. and so i guess we know that he's a white guy because like us up until a week ago he says marquez and not garcia marquez. garcia yeah. marquez um so or he, gabo to his or friends. gabo to his friends uh he was born and raised in a Ara- Mm, Arakataka? Arakataka? <laughs> sure. I'm, I'm going to say Arakataka. Please correct mm-hmm. me. Uh, please at me. Um, and this, his hometown, uh, he was actually then raised primarily by his maternal grandparents. Uh, his father was a pharmacist who ended up like moving away for a period of time. And this town would become the inspiration for Macondo, which features heavily in this book that we'll talk about today. Mm -hmm. Uh, So much so that in 2006, the mayor of Macondo tried to rename it Arakataka... Tried to rename it both names, Arakataka Macondo. uh, And while 90% of people who did vote were in favor of it, only half of the people required turned out. So they couldn't change the name. 
Um, <laughs> so everybody who did come out was pretty cool with it, but a lot of people just stayed home because they were probably yeah. watching Netflix. Um, now you, I want to be clear that um, Macon, what is it, Macondo, Macondo, Macondo is uh, fictional. Yes. So they were trying town. to rename it after this. They're trying town. to re- rename Arakataka. Yes, for tourism purposes. And you, uh, yeah, you made it sound like Macondo was the real place. Okay. But. Oh, sorry about that. Yeah, it's fine. Um, he he like had a very close relationship with his grandparents. Um, his grandfather was a colonel, um, Nicholas Marquez, who would inspire a lot of his writing about you know eras like the Thousand Years War, the Thousand Days War, excuse me, Thousand Years War, Thousand Days thousand War, years <laughs> war. Uh, and other Colombian conflicts. And his grandmother is said to have been a primary influence on his magical realism style. Um, one of the biographies says that quote uh she treated the extraordinary as something perfectly natural uh and talking about supernatural things as if they were everyday occurrences because for her they they were yeah uh, so here it is here it is from gabo himself the tone that i eventually used in 100 years of solitude was based on the way my grandmother used to tell stories she told things that sounded supernatural and fantastic but she told them with complete natural naturalness what was most important was the expression she had on her face. She did not change her expression at all when telling her stories. In previous attempts to write, I tried to tell the story without believing in it. I discovered that what I had to do was believe in them myself and write them with the same expression with which my grandmother told them. With a brick face. Ooh, with a brick face. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, he would go on to study law at the National University of Columbia, um, but there was the an incident called the Bogotazo, which was an assassination of a of a political leader in 1948. The university closed. He transferred schools, started getting involved in journalism, and then dropped out. Uh, he never finished his uh, higher education studies. He began writing um, in Barranquilla, um, and you know formed you know joined a group of writers there where they were influenced by modernist writers like Wolf and Faulkner. Uh, he would go on to be like a committed leftist. He was like a good friend of Fidel Castro's, which not everyone was like super cool with. Mm-hmm. Um, he had like ad- admirations for the Cuban Revolution, um, though he didn't think like democracy and social- socialism were like mutually exclusive. He d- did get married in 58 and had two sons. And then in the 60s, he would kind of transition from a journalist into a novelist and, and short story writer. Um, and he was part of what is called the Latin American boom of the sixties and seventies. Boom. Boom. <laughs> uh, which included, uh, Gabo, uh, Julio Cortazar, Carlos Fuentes and Ma- Mario Vargas Yosa, I think. And I want to mention Yosa because, uh, they had a 31 year feud after in 1976, Gabo went up to Vargas Yosa and said, Hey Mario, and Mario punched him in the eye. <laughs> what? And he yelled, how dare you come and greet me after what you did to Patricia in Barcelona? Now, the British newspaper, The Independent, tried to get to the bottom of this. Apparently, Mario had left his wife and moved to Stockholm to be with like a Swedish air stewardess or something. Uh, air stewardess, that's not a phrase. Um, and Patricia then went to Gabo and was like, what do I do? And he was like, you should probably divorce him. And then he, quote, consoled her in a way that no one knows about. Hmm. Oh, and also Mario probably didn't like that he was friends with Castro, but he definitely punched him because maybe he slept with his wife after he had left his wife. It was a messy situation. Have we ever talked about how I 
like I've never had a nemesis. Oh, you ooh. And I kind of want one, but like I don't never in my life has this relationship been like two way. Sure. Where sure. like both of us are aware of the of the rivalry and like actively care about it. No, yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Usually I either dislike somebody and they remain instantly, instantly unaware of it or the other way around. Yeah, or you just kind of hear about it, but there's never like a reason to come to blows. There's never... I don't even need to come to blows. I just need somebody you need in the papers. who obsessively tracks my life and measures it against their own. And then also I do the same thing. Okay, sure, sure, sure. So like if there is anybody listening who's trying to, who listens to this <laughs> podcast to... Like keep up on my life and my wheelings and dealings and what I'm doing. Like, do reach out. I don't know. I got signal. Like, send me a, <laughs> send me some encrypted chats and let's get this thing popping off. Okay, okay. great. Uh, he would go on to write a bunch of other novels, um, including Love in the Time of Cholera, which you summed up four years ago, Andrew. As oh boy, the book is mostly about love and different kinds of love. And it takes place at a time when cholera was a thing you needed to worry about. You would later tell us that cholera was basically when you're just pooping your guts out. That is correct. So, <laughs> so, that, so I made it a goof. Yeah. I made it a goofy goof you about how goof. love in the time of cholera is. Okay, cool. Yes. Um, good. I'm glad you keep going back and listening to these old things because once you, like, I think episode 50 or 60 is where i can go back and listen yeah to what we're doing but before that i'm just scared of the things that i may have done to my mic or said in front of my mic <laughs> uh we should keep moving so i just want to real quick say yeah, uh this book won the uh romulus gallegos prize in 1972 it became very successful and he was able to kind of shift careers almost completely um, he did get into film. He would be the executive director of the Film Institute in Havana. He was an open critic of U.S. imperialism, um, and so he was often labeled a subversive and not allowed into the U.S., and Bill Clinton was the one who lifted the ban on him entering the U.S., <laughs> uh, You know, calling this book among one of his favorites. Uh, he published a memoir late in life called To Live to Tell It, which does all... He basically, like reported on his own life as if he were a journalist assigned to his backstory and kind of cleared up the parts where his own life has dovetailed with his fiction, uh, which for a lot of writers that we've talked about on the show, there's a lot of overlap. So I think he seemed really interested in kind of like, what what exactly happened to me? Let me go interview some family members and find out because my books are yeah. different than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he died of pneumonia after like like a dozen years of battling cancer, uh, as I said, in 2014. Um, yeah, I think he was still alive when we recorded the first episode, I right? I think he must have been. Because I think we did that in 2013. Yeah, wow. Thanks, I Gabo. Vaguely remember, I vaguely remember expressing surprise. Yeah. Which was cool. Good job, um, Andrew. <laughs> anything you want to talk about before we hit the the break and or anything else history wise you want to hit before we get into no, the book? No, I, I I think we we take that break, we get back, we talk about the book like we do. That's how it goes. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. Hey Andrew. Hey Craig. It's March, but it's yes. still twenty seventeen, which means it's still not twenty sixteen, which means there's still time for you to do something new. Time for you to make your next <laughs> 
move. You can still make good on that New Year's resolution. You got a little less than nine months left. Andrew. Everybody knows that by the time you get to like September or October, you might as well just give up and wait for next year because you're not going to get it done. Yeah. Well, it's whatever it is. It's springtime. You're planting all the seeds now. And in September, you just have weeds. You just got to clean up the fields and start again the next year. But. If you want to, if you plant some seeds and they turn into flowers, and you want to put photos of your flowers on the internet, you should make a website. Andrew, Squarespace can help me, but how? Squarespace is like the dirt where you plant internet seeds and they grow into website flowers. <laughs> but how do it work? <laughs> how do it work? That's a very good question. Um, Squarespace is a website that helps you make websites. It offers you uh, beautiful award-winning designer templates that let you uh, create uh, websites and online stores pretty easily. Um, they give you drag-and-drop tools to help you design the website, get it looking the way you want it to look without mucking around in any code. Mm -hmm. They offer an all-in-one platform that uh, makes it so you never have to install any patches or do any of that back-end maintenance we're all obsessed with back-end maintenance. That's a New Year's resolution for most of us, isn't it? Yeah, right, to, to maintain our back-ends. But Squarespace <laughs> does it all for you. Um, and if you have questions, including about some of the tortured metaphors we may have employed in the reading of this ad, <laughs> they offer award-winning 24-7 customer service. And also, finally, you can get a unique domain experience. They give you a domain as long as somebody else doesn't have it already. Yep. Uh, when you sign up the, and they set it up and they get it all working and it's all good. So um, if you are interested in planting some internet seeds in the dirt and growing them into a website, you can go, <laughs> you can start your free trial today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code overdue to get 10% off your first purchase. Craig, how many percent is that again? That's 10% wow. off your first purchase squarespace mm -hmm. make your next move now hit me with some magical realism what hit me with some magical realism so andrew i hear that this book uh Takes here a word on the street. Word, uh, smoke on the street is that um, it takes place sort of in a style called magical realism, which I know mm -hmm. uh, Gabo has said that he kind of takes a different path for each book. He doesn't choose a style; he kind of just writes as he wants to write, uh, which is very humble of him, <laughs> considering that he's like a Nobel laureate author and whatever. But uh -huh. uh, this style has kind of gone wayward in its definition and i think has been we've even applied it to uh a lot more like modern fantasy and sci-fi fiction in ways that i don't think it was originally intended to be used um yeah like i think so the the broad definition right is when you get like supernatural or like otherworldly stuff that takes place in a like a setting that is otherwise mundane. Yes. So you do, you already have some overlap with like low fantasy. Sure. Which we've talked about. So I don't know. Is Harry Potter magical realism? I don't. There is literally magic. Yeah. I, I think it has to do with how it's presented. Uh, and I think also, as I found out from a post on writingworld.com, which is uh, 
It's a real website that uh, <laughs> equip- definitely not a website that you just made up. It says it's like subhead is equipping writers for success. Um, and this is an article by Bruce Holland Rogers. So he talks about how magical realism, especially coming out of the Latin American tradition, presents a reality where these supernatural things are real. It's not just like inventing a reality whole cloth. Um, and it's not speculative in the sci-fi or fantasy way. Like, what if Britain, but with a wizard school? It's, you know, this is real life. And this it's often portraying cultures that, for many people, perv- perceive these supernatural things as real. Um, and so you're kind of extending a little bit of empathy to a world where folks have the, to the world of uh, folks who have these beliefs, um, you know, and experience ghosts or experience witchcraft or, or whatever it might be. Um, he, uh, Bruce does our buddy, Bruce um, notes three things and two of them. He cites Marquez for them um, as hallmarks of magical realism. Time is not a straight line. Um, events, reoccur with tiny variations over over grand spans of time and there's lots of resonances um causality is often subjective he cites this really interesting scene from a book called the Cer- or called ceremony by leslie marmon silko where a spurned woman is like dancing angrily and miles away her betrayer is trampled by a bunch of livestock and <laughs> the book does not explicitly say that those two things are linked um, it doesn't say that she is casting a spell or anything like that. Um, I just, think by putting the two things but, next to each other, it is implying a pretty strong causal well, link between the two things. Yes, it, and I think that's the point. But it is not like saying she, you know, literally did this, um, or that there's like some like magical through line. But it's just like the world might be such that those two things are linked. Um, and the last is that the magical and the ordinary are the same kind of the quote that you gave from our buddy Gabo. Um, you know, angels can be described with the same reverence or literality as something like frozen ice, which I think might be a reference to this book where, yeah. Um, and I'm also always reminded of the scene in to kill a mockingbird where, uh, the kids see like snow for the first time and like freak out. Um, this idea that's not that that's magical realism, but this idea that something in nature or something of what we refer you know, outside of these novels might think of as the quote unquote objective world um, is given the same grandeur and description that we usually associate with something supernatural and vice versa. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if there's anything else that you have in your back pocket about that, but I I think that's kind of the tradition that this term comes from. and, And we've certainly applied it to other books where it's just like, it's, teenagers in the real world but vampires and that's not yeah, that's magical not realism. Like that. <laughs> no um so yeah if if you want a primer on magical realism this is pretty much the book to read and it's a little jarring the first couple times you encounter it is like okay we're going to tell you the story it's a story of a town called Macondo and this family called the Buendia family and they like they founded it and they do all this stuff, but also there are gypsies there and like they're and they're so they're talking about the gypsies and they're talking about ice. And so far you're like, OK, there's some stuff that might seem magical to some people, but like I'm still, you know, still going. And then like somebody is literally lifted into the heavens and you never hear from them again. OK. Or um, what are the other what are the other things that happen? Um 
here's a I've got a little sequence here that we can read. So this is um like we might talk about some of these characters. And I and I um told you beforehand that going like blow by blow through the plot was probably not the way to to do this. So let's just start here and then I can tell you more about what the book is about and what it's doing. Um so this is describing how somebody's um grandmother or no mother finds out that they died. Um one September afternoon, with the threat of a storm, he returned home earlier than usual. He greeted Rebecca in the dining room, tied the dogs up in the courtyard, hung the rabbits up in the kitchen to be salted later, and went to the bedroom to change his clothes. Rebecca later declared that when her husband went into the bedroom, she was locked in the bathroom and did not hear anything. It was a difficult version to believe, but there was no other more plausible, and no one could think of any motive for Rebecca to murder the man who had made her happy. That was perhaps the only mystery that was never cleared up in Macondo. As soon as Jose Arcadio closed the, ba- the bedroom door, the sound of a pistol shot echoed through the house. A trickle of blood came out under the door, crossed the living room, went out onto the street, continued on in a straight line across uneven terraces, went down steps and climbed over curbs, passed along the street of the Turks, turned a corner to the right and another to the left, made a right angle at the Buendia house, went and under the closed door, crossed through the parlor, hugging the wall so as not to stain the rugs. What a considerate, a considerate like, <laughs> stream of blood. Um, went on to the other living room, made a wide curve to avoid the dining room table, went along the porch with the begonias and passed without being seen under Amaranta's chair as she gave an arrhythmic other. Le- an arithmetic lesson to Aureliano Jose and went through the pantry and came out into the kitchen where Ursula was getting ready to crack 36 eggs to make bread. Holy mother of God, Ursula shouted. She followed the thread of blood back along its course and in search of its origin, she went through the pantry along the begonia porch where Aureliano Jose was chanting that three plus three is six and six plus three is nine. And she crossed the dining room and the living rooms and followed straight down the street. And she turned first to the right and then to the left to the street of Turks, forgetting that she was still wearing her baking apron and her house slippers. And she came out onto the square and went into the door of a house where she had never been. And she pushed open the bedroom door and was almost suffocated by the smell of burned gunpowder. And she found Jose Arcadio lying face down on the ground on top of the leggings he had just taken off. And she saw the starting point of the thread of blood that had already stopped flowing out of his right ear. Um... Uh, They found no wound on his body, nor could they locate the weapon, nor was it possible to remove the smell of powder from the corpse. First, they washed him three times with a soap and a scrubbing brush. Then they rubbed him with salt and vinegar, then with ashes and lemon. And finally, they put him in a barrel of lye and let him stay for six hours. They scrubbed him so much that the arabesques of his tattooing began to fade. When they thought of the desperate measure of seasoning him with pepper, cumin seeds and laurel leaves and boiling him For a whole day over a slow fire, he had already begun to decompose and they had to bury him hastily. They sealed him hermetically in a special coffin seven and a half feet long and four feet wide, reinforced inside with iron plates and fastened together with steel bolts. And even then, the smell could be perceived on the streets through which the funeral procession passed. Um, and it just keeps going Yo, that's about how pretty you can, dope. how you can like smell the gunpowder like pretty much forever, even after they bury him until later the, the cemetery is like covered over with concrete. <laughs> That's a pretty dope passage. <laughs> That's the kind of stuff that just happens in this book. Well, like so, a, a lady flies away. Yeah. It rains for almost four years and then doesn't rain for 10 years. Well, sure. I, I like that, though, as a microcosm. Thanks for reading that passage, because that that is like that third bullet point that I read in a nutshell, right? Where it's like, yo, kid does math in the afternoon. Here's all yeah, the parts of like, your house a, you want to keep clean. Yeah, here is a tableau of, of life. That seems perfectly normal and also 
there is a very like, considerate stream of blood that's running around the carpet so it doesn't stain them. Yes. Well, and, and grief can transcend space to the person to whom it matters and yada, yada, yada. That's yeah. all right. And cool. well, um, so that the, the guy, Jose Arcadio, had married Rebecca, who was not his actual sister, but was his adopted sister. And so their mother, Ursula, like kicked them out of the house and didn't want to hear from them again. And so that's like how she that's like the only way she would have found out. So quickly that he had died because they did not have like regular contact anymore. So it's, yeah. Okay. So what is what is the that's like the style of the book that that is the style of the book. What happens in the book? I know we we can't go scene by scene or anything like that. We can't do a Narnia, but like what is occurring in the book of that is of interest. Okay, so you got this town, Macondo, which is founded by this guy, Jose Arcadio um, Buendia. Okay. And so the book is tracking both Macondo and the Buendia family and this like big house that they all live in. And the waxing and waning of the town and the family and the house are all um, intertwined. You cover, I think, seven generations of people. Whoa, okay. From start to finish. Cool. Um, people often have the same name. So, um, Jose Arcadio is a name that's repeated over and over. Um, Aureliano is a name that's repeated. Um, Remedios, um, Amaranta. These are all names like family names that get passed down. And usually people who get the same name have similar dispositions. I was just going to ask if that's kind of done on purpose, obviously. Yeah, it is. And it's not, it's not quite a thing where events repeat themselves there are some motifs that happen over and over again but just the way the the way that people approach life is sort of um it's it's or like the kinds of things that happen to them are dictated by those names a little bit i like that i like that it's not like oh here is a really neat and tidy repetitive like scene or circumstance but it's if you see this, you know, this personality, this archetype over generations and another scene crops up it's like, oh, yep, that's what that's what Jose's going to do. Right. Yeah. OK. Yeah. It's um, it's a thing where Jose Arcadios tend to be like boisterous and and energetic. And then later in life, they become a little bit senile and, and out of control. And then um, Aureliano's are quieter and. Like they they tend to uh, withdraw into themselves and and they study this particular manuscript that um, the first Jose Arcadio Buendia is like his gypsy friends left him and I am I know the term gypsy is like fraught but that's what's used in the book so sure. that's mm-hmm. why I'm going with it. Um, what so, yeah? What like, happens to this town? Like he's the founder of this town. Yeah, so he crosses over the mountains. Like he's. He and his wife Ursula are um they're in another town. I'm not I don't remember the name because it's barely ever mentioned, but so um Jose Arcadio Buendia is into cockfighting. Okay. And he kills another guy over it. Whoa. And his like ghost is haunting them. Uh, okay. Like his ghost mm-hmm. shows up in their house with a hole in his throat. Yeah. And he's always just trying to wash the wash his neck. Sure. And so to get away from that ghost, they go over the mountains and they find this secluded place and they form a town there. And he's he's a community leader and he helps like set up the streets and and get everything rolling. And then eventually like gypsies come in and they 
are selling these fantastical uh, inventions and he becomes uh, obsessed with like astronomy and alchemy and, and other things. Okay. Um, but also they're having this family and the se- second generation of this family grows up and like one of them is a, is a colonel who plays a big part in the thousand days war. Sure. Um, one of them is the guy who we just talked about who got killed and his blood went everywhere. <laughs> okay. Like his blood is a globe trotting. <laughs> And I think the colonel is 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 loosely inspired by uh, Gabo's grandpa. Ga- sure, Gabo's Ga- Gabo's Gpa. Um, Gabo's Gpa. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, it just it go and it goes, and all these all the family members are very like closely intertwined. And then there's this like in the third generation. And is the book I organized think... like by generation, or is it skipping back and forth? It there's a little bit of skipping, but mostly it's linear. Okay. Um, so sometimes you'll get an account of like somebody's death, but then in the next chapter you go to deal with another character, and sometimes things are happening in parallel, and it's not like just like a straight. Okay, sure, thing. sure, sure. Um, I just want like the only time that the name thing doesn't work out is when there are twins named um, Aureliano and Arcadio, and. They like Gabo puts forward this theory that in playing pranks, they may have themselves gotten like mixed up. So oh, no. like they got the wrong name going Uh-oh. to the wrong person. Um, so yeah, that, that's one aspect of it is you're tracking this family in this, in this village, in this house. And then also you are tracking like Colombian history to some small extent so yeah you're so hit getting, me with some of that what's what's that about um so we already started talking about the thousand days war so just let's just do that okay um, that is it was a civil war in colombia caused by the these two factions the conservatives and the liberals that's just what they're that's what they're called I'm not trying to do cutting edge like political commentary so everybody just cool down for a second everybody just calm down i think you need to calm down it's a tale as old as time it's a tale as old as time, Beauty and the Beast. Yes. Um, so yeah, the the conservative party is suspected of, and in this book is actually depicted, um, interfering with elections by you know leaving some ballots out and stuffing the ballot box. Does the book deal with? Because I, well, I was reading a little bit about the I think the Liberal Party was weakened by like coffee prices being depressed or something like like they had ties into certain industries that were like being hurt by the nate like the global depression that was happening so i don't know yeah like there's i i don't that is not forwarded in the book so much as some of the like social stuff is so the conservatives are really into into religion and 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 um the liberals are into like oh even illegitimate children should be recognized and sure everything you know things should should be secular and we should divide the country up this and this way because it makes sense um so there is a there's a civil war a Bruin and then it kicks off and um and the colonel is a major player in this insofar as he starts like third he's said to start like thirty one different uprisings and oh, he gosh. loses all, and he loses all of them. Oh boy, okay. <laughs> At least for the span of time that this book covers, like the liberals are are terminally like underarmed and and. Yeah, cannot cannot Mm -hmm. get a foothold. Mm -hmm. Um, so you deal with that in this book. Um, you deal with something called the banana massacre. 
Okay. Which was a real world thing. So there was this company called the United Fruit Company. And I think you may have done some reading about that. I just um, read that it, it exists and it, and it mattered in particular to uh, Arakataka um, because it kind of, it was one of the municipalities that benefited a lot from these, initially anyway, from these companies that came in and colonized the land and cultivated bananas um, and you can trace a lineage between the United Fruit Company and Chiquita Banana today, if you didn't right. already know yes. that. Banana mm-hmm. Republics and whatnot. Um, and like the whole... That's where the name comes from. Uh-huh. Exploitative uh, American Fruit Companies. Well, and this idea of like, it's not an explicit governmental colonialism. It's kind of this neo-colonial corporate right. invasion. Because in, in, some, in some cases... Uh, like the United Fruit Company would manage stuff like the post office. Like they would come in and they would have all this infrastructure that was um, dedicated to the company. And in many cases, that infrastructure would also be used just by the general populace. Sure, sure. Um, so, yeah, it's called the the company is called the American Fruit Company in the book. And okay. they are like this is like. Macondo's like silver age maybe I guess if you want to if you want to break it down that way <laughs> after all um, the superheroes are introduced and they start trying to change some of the story thinking more like of a, of a biblical kind of silver age but sure you can do comic <laughs> books if you if you want um the the book basically depicts all these like white people blowing into town and setting up a whole separate village around Macondo without really consulting any people in Macondo like they are depicted just like swooping in and taking land without really asking who it belongs to. So that's cool. Right. Um, but the, the company does employ a lot of people and like it's, it, it makes things bustle for a while. So in, in, in that sense, I guess it can be interpreted as, as a good thing. But what happens eventually is that, and one of the, um, one of the Jose Arcadios gets involved in this too is, um, the workers revolt like they strike sure and eventually this leads to this day where they're all like where around 3000 striking workers are all rounded up and gathered into this one place and told that you know negotiations are going to start or there's going to be an announcement about something mm-hmm. and it ends with some are some some army people uh colombian army people saying like disperse or we will shoot you all yeah okay and then they all get gunned down except for um this the jose arcadio who managed to who manages to escape but in the book like three thousand or more workers die and the fruit company covers it up and just pretends that it never happened like they dispose of the bodies but they say oh you know the company was never there or we got out for like weather or farming related reasons like it just it never it never happened like that okay and this is a this is a real world thing that happened though the number of people who died is is like vastly disputed the number goes from anywhere from like 47 people to 3000 people um i think the 3000 number I'm not sure if it comes from 100 Years of Solitude, but that's definitely the source. Huh. Oh, that, okay. Like, like, not the source of the number, but, like, clearly uh, Gabo is is working off of this, this rumor. Well, that... and that's, that's interesting, too, because of how this book proliferated through the rest of the world 
Yeah, as, and, and as he, a literary he, success, you know, he himself says that the number was exaggerated for effect in the in the book just to make the. I think like the 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 end it serves in the book by making that number that big is just making it seem that much more, like. I don't want to say supernatural, but more um, unbelievable that something like that could just be swept under the rug. Yeah, it's because that's like so many people and like so many families would have been affected. It's just hard to and could and could three thousand people really be like? You can imagine that like us and uh, I can't even like it's, it makes it pains me to say it out loud because I would I would never do this right. But you could imagine like a group of people being frightening or or unruly enough to like at least spark some action but like 3000 people just kind of gathered together and all of them being killed is yeah it's so heightened and maybe that's you know maybe that is kind of more emblematic of of similar events over time even though yeah. I'm, I'm sure that that's not what he was referencing specifically but yeah, yeah I mean, that's we, a weird we, thing. Yeah. We do have a few different telegrams from around the time. So these are um, all dated um, in December 1928 and January 1929. Um, so one of them says, um, military who have orders not to spare ammunition have already killed and wounded about 50 strikers. Um, there's a separate one that says, I have the honor to report that the legal advisor of the United Fruit Company here in Bogota stated yesterday that the total number of strikers killed by the Colombian military authorities during the recent disturbance reached between five and six hundred. Okay. While the number of soldiers killed was one. Oof. Um, and then the one in January says, I have the honor to report that the Bogota representative of the United Fruit Company told me yesterday that the total number of strikers killed by the Colombian military exceeded 1,000. So I'm wow. not sure if these are if these are different events figures or, or if it's just yeah. like more people are getting killed over time. Okay. But obviously this like 3,000 at once event in the book is based on this real thing. And you can draw like so there's an ongoing um like low level military conflict in Colombia like that that continues to this day and it has its roots in the sure. banana massacre and some of the movements that like rose up as a result of it so like and and in the like civil war that is described in the book so so yeah history is is tricky well and this gets to what a little bit of i've read of the book is that it does even though it is fiction, even though it is magical realism, there is an element of like chronicling Colombian history in as much as uh, Gabo and his, you know, personal experience is able to do so um, through like seven generations, right. Of, of, of people living in this area. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm sure, you know, we're having discussion now that's like, I would not necessarily be reading about some of this stuff or have fresh, uh, knowledge of it at all were it not for us talking about this book so i'm sure there's like you know there's generations of people who have read his work and are now a little bit more informed about columbia <laughs> yeah the, right like this know. is this is definitely a book that can launch an hours long wikipedia sesh about all the all the atrocities discussed therein you know well and that type of that type of corporate behavior is unfortunately not um gone i don't i don't it's a thing that we talk about with oil companies and yeah companies oil companies still. and and like diamond companies and yeah like definitely conflict 
in relation to like resources that are sold as consumer goods is like still a thing. Yeah. Um, but there, but there, there are some lighter moments uh, too. So I want to talk about what happens when movies come to town. Ooh, the big picture, the big, the silver screen. Um, here we go. Uh, dazzled by so many and such marvelous inventions, the people of Macondo did not know where their amazement began. They stayed up all night looking at the pale electric bulbs fed by the plant that Aureliano Triste had brought back when the train made its second trip. So this is after the train has come to Macondo also. Okay. Um, and it took time and effort for them to grow accustomed to its obsessive tomb tomb. Uh, they became indignant over the living images that the prosperous merchant Bruno Crespi projected in the theater with the lion head ticket windows for a character who had died and was buried in one film and for whose misfortune tears of affliction had been shed would reappear alive and transformed into an Arab in the next one. The audience who paid two cents a piece to share the difficulties of the actors would not tolerate that outlandish fraud and they broke up the seats. The mayor, at the urging of Bruno Crespi, explained in a proclamation that the cinema was a machine of illusions that did not merit the emotional outbursts of the audience. With that discouraging, with that discouraging explanation, many felt that they had been victims of some new and showy gypsy business, and they decided not to return to the movies, considering that they already had too many troubles of their own to weep over the acted-out misfortunes of imaginary beings. Wow. That's a pretty... I really like that because it's like people getting mad at movies for being fake, which is. <laughs> but like, I like the I, their argument is pretty good though. It's not just there are people for whom movies do nothing because it's fake, just as there are people for whom like music does nothing because why? Like I, well, there are... I can I can imagine, especially when movies were new, that if, especially if you're exporting them to places without a culture of like theater. Or, or whatever, or or a culture of making cinema in particular, because mm-hmm. I think, because then they're they're not you know you're not telling stories that are in any way native to that culture, right? Like you're just like here's some folks being folks on a screen, care about them. Well, yeah, and here they're just getting mad about the concept of an actor. Yeah, who, in, in who... particular, a film actor. Because I think the thing with theater too is like if if especially if it's woven into your community, you can like go up and talk to that person later. Like sure. they still did a, a cool thing, but this is just like, especially f- film has this illusion of, of being realer than some of the other art forms because you've like captured it on film. Cause yeah, you have more control over the angles and the editing and yeah. But I just, I like the idea of like, if today we saw a show that was like emotionally manipulating us, we would get mad and smash our TVs <laughs> and not watch TV anymore. <laughs> I I also you mentioned uh that this was also after the train had come to town too, right? Yeah. So there's this sense that like these are not technologies that were built locally. Like they were brought there, which is an mm-hmm. inter- that's a that's a thing that it's like a cultural experience that is not uh shared among certain countries, right? Yeah. Like a, a big a big thing in this book is like the cyclical nature of things and of time. And so um, the citizens of, of Macondo reacting to external stimuli is oh, repeated sure. over and over. So yeah. at the beginning, it's like, oh, the, the gypsies brought frozen water into town and it's amazing. Um, and then later it's like, oh, the, the banana company or the train brought this and this into town. And this is how the citizens reacted. And this is what it did to the town. And 
this is what it did to the town after it left and yeah okay um can, can you tell me about the insomnia plague i've read some interview so i was reading an interview with him and he was asked about his interest in plagues and he says i've always been interested in plagues beginning with oedipus rex um, a Journal of the Plague Year by Daniel Defoe is one of my favorite books. Plagues are like imponderable dangers that surprise people. They seem to have a quality of destiny. It's the phenomenon of death on a mass scale. What I find curious is that the great plagues have always produced great excesses. They make people want to live more. It's that almost metaphysical dimension that interests me. Um, and this is a, an interview with him, I think, around the time of uh, Love and the Time of Cholera. So... What's up with this insomnia plague, Andrew? Um, the insomnia plague comes to town when somebody rolls through who want, who doesn't sleep. Okay. <laughs> and then all of a sudden they, like the Buendia family, can't sleep. And because Ursula is at this point running a little candy business out of her kitchen, and she's selling those candies all over town, like pretty soon nobody can sleep. Oh, no. And at, and at first... It's cool because, like, we don't need to sleep anymore. We can just be busy all the time building a town and being awesome and doing all this stuff. But it is it is revealed eventually that the end point of the insomnia plague is you start to forget stuff. And so there's this description of people starting to forget the names of objects. So they make a little sign. And then all of a sudden there are signs all over this all over the this room and then there are signs hanging over like cows and everything in the village. And then because they're worried that they will also start to forget like the context and the meaning of these words, they start to write, okay, here's a cow. Like, here's what you do with this cow. And the, the end point of this that they never, they never quite reach because the plague gets cured is like, what do you, what happens when you forget what letters are? Oh boy. And you can't read anything anymore in the first place. Um, the rain, thing and then the drought that follows it those are also very plaguey okay um so the banana massacre happens and again like like you said earlier with the with the trampled by bulls thing yeah the causality it's not it's not an explicit cause and effect thing but they do happen one right after the other so it's not not a cause and effect it's it's that thing where Something happens and you know it's not related, but man, it feels like it. Like this yeah. is a bad day. Of course I got ketchup on my shirt. Like this just, I get it. <laughs> I shouldn't have told that fib over breakfast and now I got ketchup on my shirt. Of course. I mean, the four the four years of rain that starts to totally wash away the town and and is the precursor, the precursor of its its destruction is not the same as getting ketchup on your shirt. I do appreciate you using like a small example to illustrate a bigger point. So that's pretty good. That's what I'm here for. But yeah, after the banana massacre, it starts to rain for four years and it starts to like wash stuff away and it ruins some of the, like the Buendia family at this point, a lot of their wealth is derived from these, this livestock that just breeds and breeds and they have all this excess. And then all of a sudden it's raining all the time and all their, cattle and stuff die hmm. um and nature is like there's this ongoing thread throughout where like nature and the buendias are fighting over the house oh, okay <laughs> so like maybe the house is falling apart maybe it has termites maybe there are ants crawling all in it 
and there are cycles where the house falls into neglect and then there are cycles where somebody comes in and tries to restore it hmm. but it's a, it's a losing battle against nature that they're fighting eventually okay. um so let's let's talk about so we're in all right we've had four years of rain we've had 10 years of drought like pretty much everybody's leaving the town the banana company's gone the train doesn't even stop at the stop anymore unless somebody like flags it down Okay. Um, like Makondo's clearly on the way out. Yep. So since the beginning of the book, um, Jose and Ursula, they are like first cousins, I think. Like the first generation Wendy is. Okay. Are like cousins. And so something that Ursula has always been worried about is like a kid being born with a, with a pig's tail because of inbreeding okay okay reasonable um so ursula lives to be like 120 or 30 something years old she lives to be super old good job ursula um but after she dies there are these two uh members of the family um there is amaranta ursula who is part of the fifth generation of wendia's and then um another aureliano who they like Amaranta Ursula comes back to town from like studying abroad with a husband, but she and this Aureliano were both like kids together in the house. And eventually they start having an affair and Amaranta's husband leaves and their relationship is like literally destroying the house. Like they're banging in like every room and like breaking furniture and tearing beds apart. And just their passion is is wrecking up the place. And eventually they're just living in a couple rooms and they're like seeding the rest of the house to nature because oh, why God. even worry about it anymore? Okay. And so she has this baby, this last Aureliano, who is who is born. And she dies from like hemorrhaging after birthing this baby. And then um that ba- the baby's father, Aureliano goes into like is is grieving and like goes and gets drunk and neglects the baby and then the baby is carried off and eaten by ants whoa which is kind of the logical endpoint of the house being taken over by ants and by nature and stuff so like house as emblematic of family baby as emblematic of family line sort of nature consumes all Uh uh-huh ants are coming to get you and so let's talk about where the name of the book comes from yeah hit me with we haven't talked we haven't talked about lonely people at all so the the solitude bit is like every member of this family is described as being in a kind of solitude like i think they they all eventually sort of withdraw into themselves and have these inner struggles and and things that they can't share with anybody and so that's that's where solitude is it's it's just it's a word that comes up over and over in talking about this family a lot of the Aurelianos in particular, their form of solitude is studying this manuscript who was left by this guy named um, Melchiades, we'll say. Yeah, we'll say that. Yeah, I believe that. Um, who was a gypsy friend of the first Jose Arcadia Buendia. And so he leaves behind these like manuscripts that are in Sanskrit and even when you translate them out of Sanskrit, they're still written in code, so you have to decode them. And members of this family over these generations make fitful efforts to try and like decipher this the stuff in these in these scrolls. So this last not the not the baby Aureliano who gets <laughs> eaten by ants, but this last Aureliano 
is really dedicated to the study of this stuff and is making really good progress when he gets distracted by this incestuous affair with his aunt. Oh, did I mention that the baby was born with the tail of a pig? So there's some cyclical stuff for you. Um, He translates this stuff and it is revealed that it is an, it is a complete history of the Buendia family that only could be translated after a hundred years had passed. So it's, it it's sort of magical in that way. So this, yeah. So this family, this family is about solitude and this, this like manuscript that is translated is a hundred years of this family. So there you go. Like a hundred years of solitude. Oh, neat. In in closing, 100 years of solitude. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But but the, the funny thing, the funny thing about like, he's, so he's, he didn't really know his parentage. He knew that his uh, relationship with Amaranta was probably some kind of incestuous. He did just he just didn't he just know the didn't specific know. kind. Okay, so he finds that out, and then he gets to the point where he's reading about the present day, and he's reading about like this this windstorm like blowing the house apart, and it's implied in the end that he's like killed in a hurricane after finally like just as he's finally deciphered this stuff. Like he's like literally reading like, oh, and then a hurricane like crushed yeah, him in the right. head and then yes. boom. Mm-hmm. Okay. I can, that's like a Goosebumps book. That's a, that's a kind we, of like I, a very long magical realism I, Goosebumps book. I, Is Goosebumps cr- magical realism? I cracked my like, family's Like this is real... This is real life, book. but there's a a sponge under my sink that hates me. My family has had this magical doll for a hundred years. Its name is Solitude, and it ate my baby. Mm-hmm. Goosebumps, goosebumps. <laughs> I I'm, here's my normal suburban family, but we have a camera where if you take pictures, you die. Like you die. Yeah, say cheese. The you, people in the pictures die or whatever. That's yeah. That's actually a real Goosebumps book. Did you know that? I, the all the ones I've described so far have been real. I was just checking that you knew them. <laughs> this is a real. I'm a normal teen, except actually I'm like a member of a royal family from way back in the day, and I've been magicked to the future. Magical realism. Yep. Goosebumps. Goosebumps. Um. So this sounds like it was I'm a, a cool normal book. kid, but well, I have a can of green ooze that makes hamsters and stuff grow. You read way more Goosebumps books than I did. You I got you so have a deeper bench. I really do. So it sounds like you dug this book, though. It's pretty neat. I did, yeah. I wasn't... So we've talked a little bit on the show before about how sometimes a book's like voice takes a little while to get into. And yeah. um, Gabo definitely takes a couple chapters for me. Especially, like, you, you need to get through a couple of major magical realism events... Okay. Before your mind is calibrated to accept that, like, fantastical stuff is just gonna happen. Yeah, yeah. In between all the stuff about like grandmas making candy in their kitchen to sell people. Okay, that's because yeah. you you get up to the. I think the insomnia plague is one of the first big ones, and they're all talking about like being up for weeks and weeks and weeks, and then your brain is like, well, probably not. Like literally, though. Like probably this isn't literally true or meant to be literally true or like meant to be something that could take place in the real world. But it, it also it is It's literally true in the world of the story, but it's yes. it is also clearly fantastical and heightened. And it also seems to many of these elements seem to eschew a like one to one symbolism. Like they're they're symbolist they they are symbols in like thematic sense, but it's not necessarily like 
and this is the part where they couldn't sleep is like a direct allegory for this it's mm-hmm. it you're even you just kind of unpacking that scene sounds like there's a little bit more going on there yeah uh, in the, the same, and the, same and the, thing with the blood thing too the other part that tripped me up and will probably trip up people who are reading this is just keeping names straight sure especially since like at first it's just what are all these names what are all these names and which ones do i need to remember and then that confusion is compounded a bit by the fact that all the family members have the same names so you yeah. need to remember that like oh there here's this one who's called like arcadio jose and here's um jose arcadio segundo and and you just have to know which one the book is referring to because many of them are alive for overlapping periods oh, okay yeah and so you have to remember okay this all right they're talking about the the colonel so this is this specific guy and here's all the stuff that happened to him and here's the story we've been tracking and there you go did um did gabo do his own translation who did the translation that you read um the translation on this one hold on i need to open it up and actually see knowing that knowing that he's uh, translated from the spanish by gregory rabasa okay knowing that this he's... is the um harper perennial modern classics yeah. edition it's a paperback yeah I, I in any of my reading about gabo i didn't come across like a particular translator relationship though given that he's a late 20th century or you know, twentieth century, and then a lot of his books in the second half of the century. I imagine there are not like scores of different translations of his work. Probably, probably like not. Of, I imagine ones through his publishers. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm just like guessing here, but yeah, probably his publishers handled it, and probably he had some. Yes. Measure mm-hmm. of of like rubber stamping approval or disapproval that he could give. So yeah. Well, cool. I think that's about. I think we're about out of time. Yeah, this week. I I hope I don't want to go back to that that old episode and listen to it. But I remember like I was coming in really really hot. Like I had barely finished the book by the time we sat down to record. We didn't really have a system worked out yet. No, we had no idea. And what I just we were doing. I I do not remember that episode going super well. Yeah. That- so hopefully, like this is one of the reasons I want to take a crack at another. Garcia Marquez is I wanted I just wanted a chance to like do one justice sort of <laughs> yeah and, and I think also that was that was the first book you had read for the show and my first time in the helper seat and that the, whole helper seat the first episode was like the pilot where like that was the book one of the books that helped me even like pitch some of the idea of the podcast to you so like I think I had a stronger idea of what I was doing and yeah, I and I was like, how about I, who have not read <laughs> a work of fiction in like three years, read this giant tome by this giant of literature, and also let's make it a really hard concept to grasp. Yeah. Uh, well, it is a large book, and I'm sure we didn't talk about all of it. So if Oh, uh... no, we didn't. It's just one of those things that you you need to read to experience, I think. Yeah. Didn't you didn't you have a question you said you wanted to ask? Oh, yeah. I, I know we're getting close to time, yeah. but Well, I know that um he wrote this, you know, wrote stuff in Macondo as kind of a love letter and and exploration of his hometown and the house is lovingly modeled on his grandparents' house that he spent a lot of time in. So like, I just I just have wrote down this question like what kind of novel would your hometown be? Like if this is the novel that came out of 
Gabo like thinking about where he grew up. Like what what type of book would happen? I'm from Central Ohio, so my book is about three things right now in 2017. <laughs> it's about the decline of American fact manufacturing. <laughs> okay. It's about the like the decline of the white middle class and it's about the heroin epidemic. Okay. It's about those three things cuz that last one in particular is um ravaging like the entire state but also like particularly the yeah town i grew up in sure um if you if you google anything about marion ohio you're gonna find stuff about like drug busts and and it's just like it's a really different place than i grew up in like 10 years ago and i so maybe have, would... i've like severed most of the the links that i that i have to that place i just hear about it as like a it's like a reflection of, of items distant then, yeah. like a distant troubled i don't know it, it was it was fading when i was there for sure but the um opioid thing is is pretty pretty yeah. bad there yeah also it was a town where warren g harding was from best president so, there ever. you go yeah yeah could... best president okay it would be your book would be called the best president warren g harding the best president retrospectively not as bad as we might remember <laughs> uh and i was thinking that my book because it would be about the king of prussia mall well here's the thing so the king and about the cold stone creamery where he worked and you still know the words to a lot of the songs that well, they would make you sing now here's the here's the thing though andrew it'd probably be like some sort of outlander book because uh king of prussia is not far from valley forge national park where you know George Washington stayed with his troops in the Revolutionary War. So, like, what if a curious... Uh, was George Washington as good as Warren G. Harding, though? I don't think he was. But what... I think my president beats your president. What if an <laughs> intrepid ice cream making boy, like, found a, like, <laughs> mystical closet behind the peanut butter cookies and, like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. traveled back in time to Revolutionary Days and it'd be a king and president George's court? A boy, no, wait. No, I king. have I have a better name. So what you are, you are a an aspiring journalist who works in Cold Stone to pay the bills. Correct. And then you go back in time to learn the real story of the Revolutionary War, and it's called What's the Scoop? <laughs> Done. Print it. <laughs> That's what it is. Thank you. Boom. Uh, as I was saying before, Andrew reminded me of this wonderful question I had to ask. Uh, <laughs> if this is a book that you know about and you were really excited for us to talk about and we didn't hit your favorite uh, passage or, or element of the book, please send us a message. Uh, we've gotten some great emails in the last couple of weeks, some really thoughtful emails. So thank you for those. You can use overduepod at gmail.com to send those in. Or you can hit us up on social media, which is the primary place to talk about how much you like me almost dying on air. Um, that's facebook.com slash overdue pod or twitter.com slash overdue pod. I want to thank Melissa, Sam, Tessa, Morgan, Adam, Gloria, Julie, Dion, Anna, Amelia, Chelsea, J Joseph, Rebecca, Sophia, Tony, Benji, Talitha, Kate, Blair, Graham, uh, Sean, Pumper Nicholson, Intrepidly, So Call Me Shirley, Lucas, uh, The Bookmans in Tucson, Becky, Danielle, Linda, Br Brittany, Glenn, uh, Unearthenum, Rebecca, Melissa, Catherine, Camille, Tysophine, Charlotte, Lee, Tracy, Sarah, Emily, Hannah, definitely R.A. Taylor, Katie, Megan, Mr. Trafithic, Karen, Mary Kay, Ian, Robbie, C.T., Valerie, and Rob. Most of those 
people I just mentioned all uh, talked about Turkish Delight this week, which is kind of nuts. So mm-hmm. thanks, we everybody. We should Turkish Delight on, on every, every episode of every podcast every week. We just try a different flavor, like some of the, like the kind with nuts or maybe the citrus kind. Okay, well, you just proposed a thing that would kill our podcast. So now that our podcast is in the Wayback Machine, uh, mm-hmm. what URL should people look up to find out all the things that used to be relevant to our show before it got killed by you? They go to OverduePodcast.com, which is the dirt that we've planted our internet seeds in. <laughs> um, up there, you can find links to iTunes, RSS, Stitcher, and Google Play. Those are all services you can use to subscribe to the show. If you subscribe in iTunes, do rate and review us because it helps us rise in them rankings. It makes us feel good. And really, I mean, we do give you lots of content for free, so you pretty much owe us. Yep, you owe I us. Think. I'm going to like we need to start putting a contract up front whereby like listening you agree to give us a four star or better review on iTunes. <laughs> what else is on the website, Andrew? Um we got links to Headgum our podcast network, Spreaker our podcast host, um Amazon links to the books that we have read and are going to read. We have our schedule for whatever the current month is, so right now it's March, next month it'll be April. You see how it works. Um, we've got like the next couple months of the show planned out at this point, and I'm pretty excited about most of it. <laughs> <laughs> Buckle up, everyone. Uh, what else is up there? We've got a link to our Patreon projects. Uh, that's pretty much it. Yep. Yeah. Oh, we have a page for new listeners that we updated a few weeks ago where if you're trying to recommend somebody the show and you're trying to find them some episodes they could get into, we have, I think, like 20-ish uh, show recommendations up there right now so hit that up uh and also pursuant to our patreon project uh this book was actually recommended to us uh through the patreon reward system by richard so thank you richard for giving andrew an excuse to come back to our good friend gabo uh, mm-hmm. next week will actually be uh our live episode that we taped about a month ago uh on treasure island by robert yeah. lewis stevenson yeah, I thought the episode turned out pretty well. And yep. the sound quality is not quite as good as the Philly episode we posted um back in the summer, but it's 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 listenable. Just know that, you know, we we are doing our best with the equipment that we're given and sometimes it's, you know, sometimes you get an unpleasant surprise equipment-wise, but I think I think it turned out pretty well. And uh I said some things in front of my mom during that episode that I'm not proud of. So, uh, I was enjoy, very proud of them. Enjoy insofar that. as I made you say them. Uh and <laughs> uh have a good week, I guess, everyone. Yeah. Yeah, that the classic overdue tagline. Have a good week, I guess, and try to be happy. <laughs> That was a HeadGum Podcast.